Thanks for coming to our event this morning. We're going to be talking about the use of drones domestically and internationally. And one of the things that we're hoping to accomplish is, while our panelists are going to be talking about how the issues of those two things are very different, the amount of attention drones have been getting on the Hill and from the press has become so robust that we're trying to sort of do as much outreach as possible to address all of the issues that come from the domestic and the international use. So getting everyone in the same room, I think, is a really great first step to do that. Our first panelist is Ben Friedman. He's a research fellow in Defense and Homeland Security Studies at the Cato Institute. His areas of expertise include counterterrorism, homeland security, and defense politics. Ben's also the co-author of dozens of op-eds and journal articles and is the co-author of two books, including Terrorizing Ourselves, Why U.S. Counterterrorism Policy is Failing and How to Fix It. Following that is Spencer Ackerman, who's a senior writer for Wired, covering national security, soon to start with The Guardian. In 2012, Spencer won a National Magazine Award for his coverage of Islamophobic training materials inside the FBI. He's reported from Iraq, Afghanistan, and Guantanamo Bay, and has written publications ranging from Playboy to Inside Front. Finishing up today, we have Cato Research Fellow Julian Sanchez, who focuses primarily on issues at the intersection of technology, privacy, civil liberties, and new media. Before joining Cato, Julian served as the Washington editor at a technology news site, and he was also an assistant editor for Reason Magazine, where he remains a contributing editor. And now I will turn things over to Ben. All right, thanks everybody for coming out. I know there's uh, been a lot of drone things like this lately, so thanks for coming to ours, among the many. Um, let me give you my uh, bottom line points up front, one sort of a policy point and one's more of a political science point. The policy point um, is that whether or not uh, this president's vast expansion of uh, war powers, including drone strikes, is legal, uh, Congress should make it illegal. Uh, that is, Congress should exercise uh, its war powers and restrain the president more. Uh, that's one. Two, the more political science point, the absence of legal restraint on the president's ability to order drone strikes and more generally, Star Wars is a consequence of, of good fortune. Our power and safety and technological prowess that allow us to fight wars, uh, especially from the air, at almost no cost to ourselves. And that's a good problem to have, uh, but it's still a problem. Democracy functions poorly uh, without obvious costs. That, that circumstance prevents conflict and debate, uh, which allows ill-conceived policies, in this case, an endless and I think in, in some ways whimsical war, uh, fought in pursuit of almost perfect safety. Uh, that probably, uh, it, it's not going to ruin us. It's not going to destroy our democracy or uh, even our economy. Uh, but it, it erodes liberties. It spreads uh, antipathy. And it threatens, I think, to suck us even more tragically into uh, wars that we could safely avoid. And I think because this problem is a product of our uh, good fortune, our safety and power. Uh, there's no solution to it. Uh, but we can improve matters by pushing for uh, the war or the wars to end legally and factually, uh, resisting sort of the threat inflation that, that uh, justifies it, and encouraging Congress uh, to more jealously guard its war powers. And, and finally, uh, making wars costs more evident uh, so as to hopefully encourage the formation of more anti-war interests. With the um, authorization of military force uh, that Congress passed in 2001, the President was empowered to use, quote, all necessary and appropriate force against those nations, organizations, or persons he determines planned, authorized, committed, or aided the terrorist attacks that occurred on September 11, 2001, or harbored such organizations or persons. Uh, in practice, um, 
that, along with uh, constitutionally-based self-defense power that the executive branch has, has been a, become a warrant uh, to kill or detain uh, jihadist terrorists or Islamic insurgents or whomever in their midst across South Asia, the Middle East, and uh, North Africa. In theory, in theory, it justifies even more. Uh, the last two administrations have adopted almost limitless interpretations of the powers uh, this law and perhaps their self-defense power uh, provides them. And that was affirmed yesterday uh, in Senate testimony by uh, the Acting Counsel of the Department of Defense and the Assistant Secretary of Defense or Special Operations Forces, uh, who basically said, uh, this war is going to go on for a long time. Uh, we don't think we need uh, new uh, authority to do it, and there's no geographic limit on it. Um, of course, uh, it's, it's hard to say exactly how limitless the powers this administration claims are. Uh, the administration refuses to share uh, its reasoning, even its legal reasoning, with most of Congress, let alone those of us in the public. Uh, we don't even know uh, to what extent uh, the, this administration relies, as I uh, said before, on self-defense uh, powers, uh, Article II powers that the president has, uh, because we don't know uh, what their full legal rationale is. We had this summary Office of Legal Counsel memo, it was a summary that leaked uh, a couple months ago, uh, where we learned what the rules were that the administration applies, at least when it comes to American citizens, that they might target uh, with terrorist strikes, uh, with, with drone strikes against terrorists. Um, uh, and uh, a lot was said about those rules. And I think uh, the rules, uh, especially their uh, sort of obliteration of imminent standards for lethal strikes, uh, are certainly problematic, but um, their content is, is uh, somewhat beside the point. Uh, the memo, uh, the summary memo for one was a, uh, a minimum standard, I'm, I'm sorry, it's not a minimum standard. It's not a minimum standard of what is allowed under U.S. or international law. It's a statement after the fact saying the process we already have in place is good enough uh, to be legal in those two senses. It's sort of self-assurance that what we were doing is okay. So we don't actually know if uh, some lower threshold for killing American citizens or, or other people overseas uh, would be deemed legal. Um, besides that, the rules aren't law, they're bureaucratic uh, procedure, uh, and the administration says, uh, as they did yesterday, that they don't think they need uh, any more uh, legal guidance from, from the Congress, and they, they want the courts to stay out of these uh, matters. Uh, so there's nothing stopping the, uh, this administration from changing the rules in secret tomorrow over the next president, just ignoring them entirely. So I, I don't think that's a, a great situation for democracy where we can't even figure out what the rules are governing where we can strike. We don't know exactly what countries the administration claims it now has the power to strike. That was, again, affirmed yesterday. So um, I think the real cul culprit for this overly broad and unrestricted war on terrorism or whatever we're calling it these days, of which drone strikes is just the most visible part. It's not the president and the lawyers who tell him he can do whatever he wants, but the Congress that lets him. Um, as uh, both Jim Webb, unfortunately in Webb's case after he retired uh, from the Senate, and Rand Paul both recently said, uh, Congress has abdicated its uh, war powers, its foreign policy powers, including its war powers. To use uh, the old long-dead political scientist Edwin Corwin's famous phrase, Congress has failed to take up the Constitution's invitation to struggle with the President for the invitation to guide U.S. foreign policy or direct it. Uh, so uh, what Congress should do, I think, is define, number one, uh, define the enemy more clearly. 
Um, the, the president, uh, in, in that summary memo, follows the Bush administration in claiming the power to attack al-Qaeda and its associated forces. Uh, but no one knows what those terms mean. Uh, Al-Qaeda was sort of never the global hierarchical organization of popular lore, dispatching operatives and expertise uh, and underlings uh, around the world to attack, uh, though that was maybe their hope. And uh, since they sort of achieved their operational organizational apex in the late 90s or before uh, the war in Afghanistan, they've been degraded far more. They're sort of a, they become fully what Mark Sageman calls groups of guys, I think. Uh, so there's not really an organization there, so it's a difficult thing to have a war on or clearly defined legally. Um, and the notion of associated forces, I think, is even vaguer, uh, potentially, especially in the hands of uh, creative lawyers. So uh, I think if, if we're going to continue uh, to engage in drone strikes around the world, uh, Congress ought to set some limits by group, region, or both. Um, even better, I think with the war winding down uh, in Afghanistan, Congress might simply put an end date uh, on the uh, authorization of military force on the AUMF and rely on existing uh, authority for uh, covert action uh, and uh, if, they, if need be. Uh, and uh, if, they, if we want to do a uh, strike somewhere uh, in, in Mali or Syria, uh, Come get authorization for that uh, from the Congress, but uh, let's put this open-ended warrant for em endless conflict to bed. Um, and th that's actually what was suggested uh, in a uh, op-ed uh, yesterday in the New York Times by Jen Daskal and uh, Steve Vladek that you might want to check out. Um, ideally, Congress would also clean up and restrict the sort of convoluted law and the covert use of force, especially when it comes to Joint Special Operations Command. It's sort of a legal morass. Uh, that you, you know, need uh, at least a law degree and a great deal of experience to really understand, and that's incredibly um, difficult uh, to understand publicly, which makes oversight dif difficult. Um, notice I'm not saying exactly uh, where I think drone strikes ought to be authorized. I don't know because I don't have enough information. Uh, the, the administration says it can attack, uh, for example, Islamic insurgents in Somalia, the Al-Shabaab group, as an associate force of al-Qaeda, even though they've not attacked uh, Western targets. Uh, outside Somalia, they blew up, I think it was a cafe in uh, Ethiopia, um, which had troops in, in Somalia, but um, we don't know that they've attacked anywhere in the West. I read, and the administration has said, and the last administration also said, well, they have some links uh, to al-Qaeda Central, but uh, the nature of those I don't know about. Uh, I don't think it's public. I read uh, last year in a David Ignatius column in the Post that uh, the administration uh, limits strikes in Somalia because of, I think, a sensible worry uh, that by attacking insurgents there, we might make them into global uh, jihadists that attack us, sort of a self-fulfilling prophecy. Um, but I shouldn't have to read that. We shouldn't have to read that in a column in the Washington Post. We ought to be hearing that in hearings, I think, uh, up here. Um, but um, thanks to indifference uh, in the Congress, the administration is not forced to explain their policy. Secrecy shrouds their reasoning. And almost no one, including leading experts, can argue about it or be knowledgeable about it. So that's what congressional war powers are meant to avoid. It's, it's not this sort of constitutional formalism that says, oh, we do it because the Constitution says so. It's a recipe uh, that's meant to produce better policy outcomes. It's also this logic about checks and balances is a reason to avoid, to have a bias against covert wars. Uh, they're more likely to be foolish for the very fact that they're covert and they're not uh, much debated. 
Um, so I think uh, for the same reason, it's a shame that Congress hasn't demanded the publication of these uh, legal rationales for drone strikes, not just sharing it in secret with the Judiciary Committee or the Intelligence Committee, but public publicizing it so we can do, you know, real oversight requires the press. It requires uh, publicity, not secret rooms where people go and read things. Um, and the virtues of checks and balances, I think, are why it's a bad idea to take up the suggestion put out in a recent Hoover uh, Hoover Institute paper by Jack Goldsmith and three co-authors, which were just endorsed by the Washington Post op-ed page, which basically says, let's create a list of the groups we can strike overseas uh, by country, and uh, they'll sunset eventually, uh, but that will just give the president standing authority to go after all these people. I think, I think that's a way of really making this forever war, forever war, because I don't think it will be politically easy to take people off the list once they get put on there. Um, so that, that's... Uh, what I think ought to happen, but I think it's hard to just say Congress ought to do this or that without giving any thought uh, to why uh, there's been this sort of abdication uh, of power. And uh, let me just finish by saying something about that. Um, there are a variety of explanations uh, for why this has sort of happened. You know, you can talk, you can talk about partisanship. Uh, you can talk about sort of the politics of counterterrorism. Uh, but to me, uh, the real explanation is our power and safety, which makes the sort of promiscuous use of force abroad costless or seemingly so. And um, my thinking on this is, is realist. It's, it's that power restrains power. You know, as Thucydides has the Athenian saying uh, in the uh, Peloponnesian War, the strong do what they will, and the weak endure what they must. So for the, for the, we're the strong. We do what we will, and we invent legal rationales or security rationales once we've done it. And uh, for, the, for the Greek city-states that Thucydides was writing about, um, you know, war was incredibly consequential. If you lost a war, you know, your city might be overrun, sacked. Uh, the woman uh, might be enslaved, uh, the men killed. Uh, but in the United States of America uh, these days, even the, the war in Iraq, which is, I think most people say is, was a foreign policy disaster, for most Americans, it brought little worse than marginally higher tax rates and unsettling images on TV. And the, military the volunteer military that fights the wars has a, a norm that says they don't complain about it in public, in, in policy uh, debate. Uh, so uh, it's cheap. And uh, so foreign policy issues uh, tend to rank low among voters' concerns and to contribute little to voting decisions. And therefore, politicians, foreign policy elites, have little incentive to cater uh, to voters' foreign policy views until costs, in every sense, start to mount, as they did uh, in Iraq. Then it's kind of a different thing. Um, and drones simply exacerbate that problem, which is old. You know, you can see examples of it uh, during the Cold War, certainly in the 1990s, where we did a lot of high-altitude bombing of things, uh, where we risked very little on the ground. Um, and uh, those strikes, uh, I'm thinking of uh, Serbia, occurred with a similarly nebulous legal basis. So drones, because they lower the cost even more, just exacerbate this problem. People enthusiastic about drone strikes like to say, well, well, it beats invasion. I mean, what do you want to do, put a lot of troops in there so you have skin in the game? Uh, and the answer is no. I think the alternative is peace. Uh, I think we're having war, wars or at least bombing campaigns that we otherwise wouldn't have, or at least we're having them in greater volume, as in Pakistan, uh, because the technology makes it easy. And I think the technology is a good thing, but we need to think about what sort of happens uh, to our democratic process when we have too much of a good thing. 
Um, so I think, you know, it's, it's only a slight exaggeration to say we're sort of having wars these days, uh, war-like things, uh, in a way that's sort of like buying a song on iTunes, you know, it's sort of, why not, 99 cents, right? And you don't have to put a lot of debate or thought into that. So uh, I think there are, there are a few things that we can do about this. I, I don't think they'll, they'll ever be uh, sufficient. Um, one is uh, require war costs to be paid today, uh, either in an offset or taxes, which uh, makes the cost felt a little bit more, and there's a variety of proposals to do that. Now, in the case of drone strikes, it's so cheap that that wouldn't matter much. And so I think uh, aside from that, uh, the solution is uh, to exploit bad things that we shouldn't wish for, which is uh, recent wars that uh, make this sort of thing unpopular and uh, deficits that make us more conscious of trade-offs associated with this sort of thing. So uh, I think we need to sort of nurse the anti-war, uh, anti-militarism ideology back to health in this country and sort of institutionalize now while the time is ripe um, some uh, mechanisms to control these strikes and more generally the idea that wars should be hard to start. Thanks. Hi, I'm Spencer Ackerman. I'll be the second bearded man speaking on this panel. Um, and I'm going to talk about the uh, technology uh, of, of uh, whether you want to call them unmanned aerial vehicles, remotely piloted aircraft, uh, or drones. Um, first, I want to say one thing in response to, to something Ben said, because I was covering the hearing in the Senate that he referenced. Um, and he said, we don't really know uh, where, under the authorization to use military force, the United States can use military action. I would argue that uh, we do, particularly we got that sort of stated explicitly uh, by uh, four administration uh, and military representatives, and the answer is Earth. It's battlefield Earth. Uh, this is not an exaggeration. It's something that uh, between Mike Sheehan, the Assistant Secretary of Defense for Low-Intensity Conflict and Special Operations, um, the top Pentagon lawyer, Robert Taylor, um, lawyers for the joint, uh, lawyer for the Joint Chiefs of Staff, um, and the uh, Special Operations Director on the Joint Staff made it clear that from their perspective, the battlefield is wherever, as, the, as, as one of the quotes went, the enemy goes. The enemy decides it is. Uh, Sheehan was asked where particularly, you know, do you have the bounds of this authority to use military force and strike? And he went from Boston to the Fatah, using an acronym for Pakistan's tribal areas. So uh, I, I remember very vividly after Rand Paul's filibuster uh, when uh, the attorney general goes to testify and is asked, well, you know, can you really, you know, use military authority over someone meeting in a cafe who you suspect is a terrorist? And Holder goes, no, 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 you can't do that. Well, the Assistant Secretary of Defense for Special Operations and Low-Intensity Conflict said, yes, you can. That this, if, if that, in fact, is where uh, an enemy defined very loosely under this exceptionally broad and very short law uh, manifests itself, then there are perhaps bureaucratic and strategy considerations uh, for not using military force, for using a law enforcement solution. I don't know why that's beeping, but whatever. Um, uh, but... There's nothing that stops them from doing that as a matter of law. So that's something to consider here. Um, so let's talk about uh, the technology behind uh, these flying robots of, of death. Um, there's kind of a meme out there about what drones are. Um, the idea is uh, these are things that uh, fly around without pilots uh, that spy on you according to algorithms that uh, determine uh, where and how they should spy on you for what duration, and then when they see a bad person, they kill them. And none of that is really true. 
uh, the further you dig down in that, uh, you find that these are a bunch of either badly uh, articulated or just badly um, understood uh, observations. So what do I mean by that? Uh, the first thing is, don't think of the drone as the stuff it carries. Don't think of it as the sensor packages and the cameras that spy on any that spy on people, and don't think of it as the weapons they carry that strike people. Uh, all these things are are airframes, and nearly all of them in use currently in the military. And uh, according to um, one study, uh, as of January 2012, one in every three U.S. Uh, warplanes, be that fixed wing uh, or be that uh, rotary wing like tilt rotors or ospreys or helicopters, uh, is a robot. Um, nearly all of these things, as they're used, have a pilot somewhere. Uh, whether that pilot is hundreds of miles away on places like uh, Bagram Airfield for the war in Afghanistan, or whether they're 7,000 miles away from where they're used at uh, places like Nellis and Creech Air Force bases. When you go into the cockpit, or what's called a ground control station of a Predator uh, or uh, its, its bigger, badder cousin, the Reaper, what you see is something that's not totally unfamiliar um, to the history of, of manned aviation, you've got someone in the Air Force's case, it's an officer. In the Army's case, it's an enlisted warrant officer. Um, the Navy hasn't really decided this stuff yet. Um, sitting in a freezing cold, very refrigerated uh, box, usually with a contractor from the company that manufactures the airframe next to them, uh, dark with lots of computer screens where they do what looks a lot like um, IRC style uh, chatting next to one another um, and looking over, um, f uh, connecting to their, their chains of command, littered with lots of energy drink cans around because they're on duty for something like between eight and in some cases 11 hours at a time. And what's next to them uh, is a throttle, is a stick, and they're physically controlling the aircraft in real time. They send it up in the air, they control where it loiters, they stay on station as long as that thing stays on station. And what that means is that we shouldn't think of these things as autonomous creatures. There's a human being controlling them. That increasingly is, in, is eroding somewhat. On Tuesday, uh, I was on the deck of the USS George H.W. Bush for something the Navy was super excited about, which was the launch of something called the X-47B. It's a demonstrator aircraft. The thing looks like a bat wing. There's no tail on it. Um, if anyone's a Battlestar Galactica fan, think of a Cylon Raider. Um, it kind of even has the, uh, the red visor um, it's, it's nuts. Uh, it's 62 feet in wingspan, so it's enormous. And unlike any drone before, it's capable of launching off an aircraft carrier, which is one of the hardest maneuvers in aviation. You're launching and then landing, which is the hardest maneuver in aviation, off of something that moves, that pitches, that rocks, that's affected by the weather, uh, that human beings on a deck have to be exceptionally careful about controlling. It's basically a robotic top gun. Um, it can't land on the thing on the deck yet. That's uh, they're going to do the first deck landing in either like July or August. But um, it also differs from the predators and reapers that you've read a lot about, um, and the robotic helicopters you've read about. And another difference: everything I said about the ground control station, where a guy's in there and it has a throttle, it has a stick, and all that, doesn't apply uh, for 
the Navy's upcoming uh, drones, which they're calling eventually when this program with the X-47B expires, there's something called U-Class for Unmanned Carrier Launched Aerial Surveillance and Strike. Uh, instead of a human being physically controlling these things at all times, it's lines of code. Uh, you've got software programs that uh, basically through the miracle of algorithm and interaction with GPS uh, will program in a flight plan for the, the forthcoming U-Class, which should probably enter the Navy. They want somewhere between 2018 and 2020, and then the robot flies. And when you need it to come back down uh, to, the, uh, to, the, to the deck of the ship, you enter another program, and the, and the robot executes it. Um, what they're not doing, what no one in the military is envisioning right now, is autonomizing the decisions and the protocols for striking, for releasing a weapon. That's something that the military takes exceptionally seriously. That's something international law takes even more seriously. Um, you, is, it, is it technologically possible? You can always figure out a way to automate it. But like, when you think about it, you know, what's the most, uh, what, what's the weapon with the greatest degree of autonomy there is? A landmine. So, you know, when you think about uh, autonomy and, and drones, and particularly autonomy and weapons releases, A, this is something with, with a very long history in other uh, weapons technology, and B, as of right now, there's a determination uh, inside the military that that's crossing a Rubicon, and they don't, they don't want to do that. Will they do it at some point? Mm -hmm. um, more to the point, the history of the development of this weapons technology, um, as well as the development of really all civilian technology that we use all the time, is the encroachment of automation by very subtle degrees. Um, just you can see that in the difference between uh, the way that there's a remote pilot in a Predator and there isn't one for the X-47B and won't be one for its successor, the U-Class the UK, the UK program. Um, so we've got that. Look at some of the things that uh, already right now, uh, in terms of a surveillance package, uh, these robots carry. One of the big reasons that you want these things, that the military wanted these things uh, for, the past ten, for the past 10 years, developed them for the last, you know, depending on where you want to count back since the 70s and put them into use in the, in the late 90s and such, um, is because, you know, a human being, all of us here have physical needs uh, that don't really go very well with being in a plane for 24 hours at a time. Um, so basically, that's why uh, there was um, a military market uh, for, these, for these robots. And one of the things you can do with a robot that can stay aloft for far longer than, than a manned airplane can is you strap on its belly uh, sensors and cameras of increasing sophistication that can see ever more stuff. And the term the military likes to use for this is persistent surveillance. That is, it stays over a period of, you know, depending on, you know, some of them can go for as long as 36 hours, but that's a robot with really a lot of stamina, and most of them don't have that. Uh, to take a defined period over the ground and give uh, this persistent stare, or you get what will eventually be called pattern of life activity. Everyone below, you start to see who goes to the market and when, what's their pattern, what's their routine of going back uh, home, who they interact with, and you can basically drill down because these things, it's something between, you know, ten, f sometimes five to 10,000, sometimes as high as uh, 25 to 30,000 feet. Uh, the cameras are good enough that you can, you know, see down to people's faces fairly clearly, depending on you know, cloud cover and such. Um, 
And what happens when you do that? When you have people's pattern of life activities, then you start looking for anomalies. And as the way uh, the drones have developed as, as a, as a uh, platform for using uh, missile strikes, uh, when something looks anonymous, uh, sorry, when something looks anomalous, you kill them. Um, and, and that's sort of what pattern of life activity is, is kind of giving you. Um, there are some really uh, almost hard to fathom uh, in their sophistication cameras that are being used on these things. Uh, one of them that uh, my friend here, Julian, is probably going to go into a little bit more uh, is something the Air Force developed with the funky name of Gorgon Stare. Uh, the idea behind Gorgon Stare is that uh, you can put this thing in something like a Reaper is probably on uh, the smaller end of, of, of the thing. Basically, it's, it's kind of a, a big series of, of, of megapixel cameras together. Um, I don't fully know, and I'm not sure if it's public, exactly how much you can see at once with this thing, but the Air Force likes to say you can see the size of a city all at once. Uh, when you're when you're on this, and all of the data is getting beamed down uh, to to the ground control station, where a human being has the uh, unfortunate job of analyzing all of that data very quickly, it becomes a big data problem for people familiar with that unfortunate buzzword. Um, that's not even uh, the thing that's coming on next is going to be uh, quite more intensive. Something called Argus. Uh, people who may have seen a PBS Nova documentary recently about, about drone technology may be familiar with this. Um, it's a 1.8 gigapixel camera uh, with 92 5 megapixel imagers. Uh, that can give you, in one blink of a robotic eye, uh, an image of 36 square miles. It's absolutely enormous. It's not online yet. It will be soon. Um, it gets you something like six petabytes of data per day. Uh, you can think of that as if you're, if you're watching all of this at once, um, in one sitting, that's the daily equivalent of 79.8 years worth of HD video. Uh, so really an enormous data problem. Uh, there's an irony of drone surveillance, which is that uh, the human beings who have to put all of this stuff together into a picture are just absolutely drowning. Um, and one of the things that uh, the military's blue sky researchers at the Defense Advanced Pro uh, Research Projects Agency are trying to put together uh, is increasing automation in the cameras so that you can tag and filter imagery that a camera will pre-select for you and only give you the stuff that it thinks that you need to know about. Um, so there we've got uh, some of the capabilities of these things. Uh, what are their weaknesses? Um, among them, uh, these, are, if I, these are really terrible aircraft. They fly slow, uh, they can't maneuver, um, they certainly can't maneuver very well. Uh, a funny thing, uh, the, the engine uh, that was basically the, you know, used for a prototype of a Predator, uh, and still kind of to this day, uh, is the descendant of a snowmobile engine that was put together in someone's backyard, uh, in someone's garage. Um, the engines aren't that great. Uh, the US is just starting to get on the cusp of, of uh, putting jet engines in these things. Um, the X-47B has, has a, a super Hornet engine, um, uh, which is a, a Navy plane, the F-A-18, which is a pretty, very capable plane with a very proven engine. Um, so what does that mean? You know, you notice where in the world does the U.S. use these things? Afghanistan, uh, Libya, after the initial um, decimation of Muammar Gaddafi's air defenses, uh, Pakistan, Somalia, Yemen, uh, what are you noticing about these things? These are countries that don't have sophisticated air defense systems. And that's basically because if you fired any kind of serious missile up at this thing, you just kill the robot. Um, there are some 
some reasons why, you know, there's, there's a, I should say there's a debate in the military about the value of that if you were to put them over uh, a country like China or North Korea or any place with defended airspace. Well, at least you're not killing a human being, but you are going to lose this airframe very quickly. Um, so the military, particularly the Navy and the Air Force, have this uh, kind of dense concept called anti-access area denial, or if you want to sound cool, you can use the acronym A2AD. What that means is lots of countries that want to keep you out from their airspace or off their shores invest in stuff like missiles, stuff like uh, cyber countermeasures um, that can you know, keep these things kind of far away from their shores. Um, the military is probably still not really looking uh, to use drones in those kinds of environments because you, you lose the airframe. Although, like I say, uh, there's a debate. Another countermeasure, um, there was, uh, I believe, a, a Texas, um, a Texas uh, academic engineer who saw that for uh, a lot of the uh, drones used domestically in, in limited frames, I'll talk about some of those in a second, um, because they're GPS reliant, they're really easy to spoof. And it's very easy to get, uh, as, as, as we saw, well, as we think we saw when the Iranians uh, basically got uh, their hands on a really advanced stealth drone uh, called the RQ-170 Sentinel. It's also easy to get some malware into these things. And that's really uh, something uh, to think about um, as the automation of these systems uh, goes forward. Um, the X-47B that I mentioned, the drone that can launch off and you know at some point land on an aircraft carrier, is extremely GPS reliant. That's a really big red flag, uh, particularly for those who are for interested in, in, in cybersecurity and countermeasures. Um, there's also the thing, you know, as, as a really easy countermeasure, um, with talk about uh, the drone market coming into the United States, uh, with Homeland Security and law enforcement starting to wade into buying these things, um, a really, you know, I think it's fair to say effective countermeasure. Uh, people have guns in their homes, um, and when they start to see robots circling overhead, inevitably, you know, those guns will be used on the robots. Um, I have a, a colleague who reports from Yemen um, who says that uh, some of his contacts are increasingly looking into to buying, um, you know, knockoff Chinese silkworms and like um, rockets and, and low-grade missiles that they will then aim at the drones. And, and when the U.S. starts seeing these things shot down over presumably undefended airspace, that's going to occasion quite a great deal of thought in the U.S. military. Um, so as I said, uh, and I'm going to wrap up with this, um, the drone budget in the United States military is declining. The military has basically said, with some airframe exceptions, they've bought as many of these as they need. Uh, so where does the drone market go next? It comes home. It comes to places like the United States. Um, a handful of cop shops have already gotten approval from the FAA uh, to start operating these things. It's occurs in a very limited way. None of them have been weaponized so far. Um, some of them uh, are also uh, the cheaper end. Uh, you, you see Homeland Security uh, buying some predators uh, to use over uh, the southern border for immigration purposes, and those things suck. Uh, they've crashed. Uh, there's the, the, the they haven't really mastered uh, the data links very well. Um, so there's, you know, trial and error on the civilian law enforcement and homeland security side that the military is, has, has already dealt with. Um, uh, if anyone here is an Empire Strikes Back fan, um, if you guys remember uh, the probe that the Empire sends to the ice planet of Hoth, uh, it looks like this kind of weird, funky bucket with these tendrils coming down. Um, the uh, Miami-Dade Police Department is using a drone that looks eerily like that. 
Um, the army used it uh, in Iraq. Uh, troops like to call it the flying beer keg because that's kind of what it looks like. Um, it's got some rudimentary sensors. Uh, the idea is uh, cop shops will use that if you've got like a hostage scenario, um, put that over the building um, that uh, the bad guys are taking the hostages in um, so you can get a better sense from, from an aerial overhead view without having to spool up a big helicopter that can alert people uh, to where, you know, what exits might be defended if people are getting out, if there's access to weapons and so forth coming in the back. So that's one thing. No one's talking about, and the FAA says that they will not allow uh, weaponized drones uh, for civilian law enforcement. But this is really the thing to watch. Um, in 2015, the FAA is committed to vastly opening up uh, its licensing uh, for the use of unmanned aerial vehicles in U.S. airspace. Uh, this is something that uh, Naturally, uh, drone manufacturers have a lobby. It's called AUVSI. They're really, really into pushing uh, the rapid acceleration of these drone licensing uh, issues. This is a, a big and live issue on Congress. They come uh, to buildings like this uh, every couple weeks. It's something uh, to really pay a lot of attention to. And with that, I'll turn it over to my friend Julian. Thanks. So as, as Spencer says, the, the drones are coming home. This is a, a pattern we've seen uh, throughout the history of technology. Uh, uh, a technology or a platform is developed with military funding for military applications and then uh, as war winds down, finds its way uh, into a, a variety of civilian uh, and commercial uses. Um, so the domestic use of drones, of course, is, is probably not going to be, as, as Rand Paul was concerned about, uh, having a Hellfire missile dropped on your cafe experience, but um, a whole array of mostly benign uh, surveillance applications from search and rescue missions to traffic and weather monitoring uh, to monitoring of hostage situations where uh, you know, sort of physical intrusion may be uh, perilous to people, um, but which also raise an array of, of, of serious privacy concerns. Um, the FAA predicts a, a pretty rapid expansion of the use of drones in U.S. airspace. They're projecting there'll be 10,000 in the skies within five years. Uh, 30,000 by 2030, and we know that more than 220 public agencies have already expressed uh, interest in uh, use of drones for, for various applications. Uh, we know, and uh, on the flip side, cities and states are already beginning to uh, contemplate legislation to limit the use of drones. Uh, this is uh, a case where I want to suggest, um, perhaps unusually for Cato, um, that a, a preemptive federal level regulation is probably going to be appropriate for a couple of reasons. Um, the first is just that. Uh, because we want to take advantage of some of the benign uses of drones, um, to the extent that privacy questions and rules remain unresolved, um, you are less likely to get sort of efficient levels of investment, both public and private, uh, in technologies whose application may not ultimately be legal. Um, so clarifying the rules in advance is likely to steer uh, investment in more efficient directions. Um, but also for, for a couple of other sort of technical legal reasons, one is that under a 2001 Supreme Court case called Kylo, um, the extent to which a technology is in general public use is actually a kind of critical factor in whether law enforcement use of that same technology is considered a search for Fourth Amendment purposes. And so what that means is because, you know, cases take their time winding their way through the courts, um, whether or not in general a use is, is permitted is possibly going to be a determining factor in the Fourth Amendment analysis 
of law enforcement uses. So um, if there are civilian uses that we're you know, uncomfortable with for whatever reason, it's something we want to probably say in advance before it becomes um, so common that there, the court is less likely uh, to impose its own limitations. Um, and then the other reason is that sort of tort remedies at the local level are not going to be as effective at protecting privacy and assistance for a couple reasons. One is that this is, I mean, this is just sort of a paradigmatic, paradigmatically kind of inherently interstate phenomenon. These are flying objects with extraordinarily powerful sensors that um, you know, have no reason. Photons don't respect state boundaries very well. Um, so a kind of crazy quilt of uh, 50 so state rules um, for drone privacy is, is likely to be unwieldy and unworkable. Um, and also just at the private level, tort remedies are going to be less effective in redressing privacy harms that uh, arise from drones because of what in the cybersecurity context is called the attribution problem. That's to say you've got sort of quiet, high-flying uh, objects, again, with powerful sensors where um, identifying and then after the fact attributing uh, a privacy violation may not be super easy. Um, so I think those are all factors sort of weighing in favor of, uh, of some kind of preemptive action. Um, and of course, as Spencer stressed here, um, when we consider the privacy issues that arise as a result of the use of drone, in a way, we are not really talking about kind of one specific drone problem, but rather a bundle of issues that are familiar from other contexts, but are brought together in a kind of perfect storm in drone form, uh, where some of the specific characteristics of drones, again, while these aren't totally new problems, create additional wrinkles that make those, those problems a little bit harder to resolve. Um, so there's one bundle of questions that are familiar involving uh, aerial surveillance. Uh, there's a series of cases throughout the 1980s, uh, Sorello v. California, uh, Dow Chemical, uh, Florida v. Riley, um, that have essentially said the court is not going to regulate too strictly aerial surveillance. It considers you know, the use of planes basically something that diminishes our expectation of privacy against aerial surveillance. Um, and so existing Supreme Court precedent doesn't provide a whole lot of uh, basis for confidence that uh, going forward drone aerial surveillance will be regulated. But um, there are you know, sort of serious uh, qualitative differences here. Um, normal aerial surveillance does not involve uh, large numbers of devices that can essentially hover outside your bedroom window um, and just because of the, the cost of it does not uh, occur with, with the same level of frequency. Um, There's a separate bundle of questions about high-end sensors. These are the, the questions from, from Kylo about what kinds of technological information gathering methods um, are considered searches for Fourth Amendment purposes. Um, so drones can come bundled with, as in the Kylo case, uh, thermal imaging sensors, uh, audio sensors, audio recording, obviously very high resolution visual sensors, uh, biometric sensors, things like face, tools like face recognition, um, and possibly going forward drug uh, sensors, uh, sensors that are capable of detecting trace amounts of certain chemicals, um, either you know, sort of through a, a kind of electronic nose um, or through some kind of uh, at a distance sort of spectrometry. Um, and the added sort of wrinkle here is that to some extent the court has used property rationales to answer some of these questions. Um, so for instance, there's a, a case called Hardinas recently involving the use of drug dogs. There had been a line of cases suggesting that because drug dogs only uh, detect contraband in theory, I mean in theory they 
studies show that they tend to detect whatever the handler wants them to detect. Um, but uh, in theory, they detect only contraband, illegal substances in which you have kind of by definition, no reasonable expectation of privacy. Uh, and so the dog sniff is not a search. And so in Hardinas, they said, but nevertheless, um, you can't use the, you can't just you know, walk up to someone's home without a warrant with a drug dog and have it sniffing around. The um, kind of implicit invitation to walk up and, and knock on someone's door um, does not constitute an invitation to come with a drug dog to sniff for uh, whatever chemicals may be inside the house. Uh, drones, to some extent, circumvent that by um, permitting sort of proximity sensation without, you know, literal physical property intrusion. Um, by the same token, there's a separate bundle of issues involving, um, in effect, privacy in public and whether privacy is affected by the aggregation of large quantities of data. This is sort of the, the big data problem Spencer talked about when you think of, again, a technology like Gorgon Stare. Um, you know, we're not talking about isolated flyovers uh, that are relatively targeted, potentially, you know, sort of large area-wide uh, surveillance that can compile at high resolution, um, you know, sort of large swaths of public activity over time. The court's traditional jurisprudence here um, doesn't really recognize the idea of privacy in, in public. I want to suggest that's perhaps an unnecessarily binary uh, way of, of viewing this. Um, we expect normally in public that our actions might be seen by anyone at any particular moment, but we don't normally expect that all of our activities in public will be seen by any one person or entity. And aggregating all of that information over all public spaces over long periods of time can, as, as the court suggested, reveal patterns of activity that can be more revealing and violate our expectations about the extent to which we're subject to monitoring and information is being gathered about us. This sort of implicates what's called the mosaic theory in legal circles. Uh, and this is a question that the court addressed in a GPS tracking case recently. Uh, this is US v. Jones. Um, uh, There's a concurrence by Justice Roberts that seemed to kind of edge toward the mosaic approach, suggesting that um, GPS tracking was qualitatively different from just following someone physically on the street in public um, because it would be prohibitively expensive over very long periods of time to sort of stake out a, a particular person. Um, but the actual controlling opinion uh, by Justice Alito um, really used physical, uh, the physical attachment of a device to the car, the property intrusion as the basis to decide that. So um, as with Hardinas here, the ability of drones to surveil cheaply and over long periods of time without crossing property boundaries uh, sort of re-raises that question, you know, sort of brings it back, uh, but without the sort of answer that resolved it in this instance. Um, and so implicit in all of this is, is the question of what is different about drones, and I've, I've suggested some of those things, um, but I, I do want to suggest that it's, it's not just um, you know, the same question in a smaller package. Um, one reason is that cost matters. And again, this is something that, that came up in, in the Jones case. Um, the way technology reduces cost barriers um, can, can actually be important. Uh, uh, cheaper is very different. Um, the legal scholar Lawrence Lassig is fond of saying that code is law, meaning that as much as the formal legal restrictions on, for example, surveillance matter, um, or speech matter. Also, the architecture of technological systems is often an even more serious constraint, uh, and that 
often legal rules that are developed assuming as background one set of technological constraints um, cease to be adaptive when those assumptions are falsified by changing technology. Um, and so, uh, as, in, as in Jones, I suggest that um, there is a, a qualitative difference when we move from expensive planes that can only be used you know, rarely in very sort of serious cases that justify that expenditure to essentially ubiquitous um, and, and relatively cheap to operate surveillance devices. Um, yeah, I, one of my favorite science fiction authors, uh, uh, Ian Banks, uh, imagined in one of his sort of far future novels, a, a society where there really aren't any laws. It's very anarchic and kind of mellow. Um, but if you do actually sort of insist on hurting people uh, and don't want to get your brain rewired, they, they assign you a slap drone, just a little floating robot that follows you around and makes sure you never do it again. Um, we are getting perhaps not quite to that level, but you know, fairly close to, the, to a point where it is not wildly uh, inconceivable that if not every single person would have their own drone, that for you know, every few hundred people um, there would be a, a drone assigned to at least that area. Um, size and altitude matter, as I suggested earlier. Um, normal aerial surveillance is not that good at you know, staring in your bedroom window. Um, and also the size and the silence of them um, change the assumption we usually have about the reciprocity of surveillance in public. That is to say, uh, in general, we expect that when we go out in public, we will be observed or may be observed, but we also expect to a substantial extent that we will be aware of whether or not we are being observed. So I may, in public walking, have a private conversation um, and lower my voice to a whisper or stop talking altogether as I see another person approach. Um, so even within the public domain, um, the, uh, the fact of reciprocity, the assumption of reciprocity, um, gives us the ability to ensure that we're not exposing more than we mean to. That's also potentially falsified with drones. Um, and so I think implicit in this are a series of dimensions on which to think about regulating drones, both for uh, private, commercial, and uh, public and law enforcement uses going forward. Um, I will not you know, suggest specific uh, you know, uh, standards along any of these, but as we're thinking about establishing rules for the domestic use of drones, um, we may just want to think about what kind of rules would be appropriate along each of these dimensions. Um, so first, focusing on the sensors themselves, uh, and especially taking into account um, the, the height at which the drones are expected to fly, you know, what is the practical resolution of the sensors at issue? Um, is the strength of the sensor um, you know, proportionate to the use that is contemplated for that drone. So if you're, you, know, you have drones that you're contemplating using for traffic monitoring, you probably don't need a sensor on it powerful enough to uh, you know, count the freckles on your back through your bedroom window. Um, this is not, by the way, I should say this is not a kind of crazy hypothetical. There have been cases in the UK where the operators of uh, public uh, you know, ring of steel surveillance cameras have been indicted for essentially turning the cameras up to look through the window of uh, the apartment of an attractive woman who lived near one of the cameras. Um, we should perhaps not be so uh, you know, confident in the probity of, of the people who would be operating drones that um, we should imagine this will not happen if the sensors are, are power unnecessarily powerful enough to allow that. Uh, we may want to consider as an additional dimension 
limitations on the duration of drone flights, at least when a drone is not doing kind of general area surveillance, but tasks to monitor a particular person. Um, so we may want to say, again, in line with the argument that Justice Roberts made in the Jones case, that there may just be some period after which a drone that has been tasked to monitor a particular person or group would require a warrant um, to, to continue that surveillance. Um, we want to think, again, uh, keeping in mind the idea that the aggregation and searchability of information about us, even in public, uh, implicates the level of privacy we enjoy, uh, rules about the retention of data. So if the purpose of drone monitoring is real-time traffic or some other relatively short-term purpose, um, we, we may want to have constraints on the amount of time that information is retained so we don't end up to de facto building enormous databases about very long periods of public activity that can later be searched to you know, essentially find out everywhere a particular person has been over the last six months using, let's say, face recognition technology or license plate reading technology. Um, another dimension may be access. That is to say, we may want to try and keep siloed drone, uh, drone data so that it is not easily aggregated, again, because aggregation um, can have privacy implications. Uh, so I'm thinking here both of access to private drone records. There's a sort of general presumption that um, the, there's a very low legal standard to subpoena, as the AP has discovered, uh, to, to subpoena records held by you know, some kind of third party. So if I'm interested in surveilling you, but I'm not getting your data, I'm getting data about you from a third party, um, there's relatively little legal protection there. Uh, we may want to impose additional limitations, as we've done in the context of various kinds of, of communications data, uh, although not nearly enough, um, on government access to drone surveillance data, but also between government agencies. That is to say, if the Parks Department um, or you know, Border Patrol is operating drones for a specific purpose, um, we may want to silo that data so it cannot easily be repurposed by another agency that then decides to use that data um, for, again, ends not, not contemplated when the initial sort of drone flight was authorized. And the, the final dimension we want to consider is, again, in answer to that kind of attribution problem, rules about identification, finding some way to signal to people on the ground what drone is looking at you, uh, what, you know, who is operating the drone you see hovering outside your bedroom window, and is that just a traffic drone or is that your creepy neighbor from across the street um, you know, pointing the camera towards you? Um, what precisely the standards ought to be, obviously, is not something to, to get into here, but we should think about each of these dimensions and how they interrelate when establishing rules, and we should do it before the drones get up there.